morning. Hi, I'm Andy Platman. And I'm uh, Ken Barrett. Welcome to Brainland podcast number 10. Today we're talking to Professor Phil Husbands, Research Professor of Artificial Intelligence at Sussex University. Welcome, Phil, and thanks for joining us in Brainland. Well, hello, and I'm, I'm glad to be here. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you've progressed your academic career to find yourself at the centre of what has become one of the hottest areas in science today? Well, um, I started in maths and physics. That was my original area that I worked in and studied in. Then in, I think it was 1984, I did an MSc in computer science because I wanted to advance my computer programming skills. Uh, but on that MSc, there was some AI modules and I just got really interested in AI at that point. And then after I finished that, I worked in industry for a while working on AI systems um for british gas and other people and then i got recruited to edinburgh university as a research assistant working on, on a project in ai and engineering but at that time i also did a phd there and that's where i got really deeply into bio-inspired methods in ai so inspiration from neuroscience evolutionary biology and a few other areas and from there from there i've just stayed in academia ever since so i, I moved to sussex university in 1989 and Sussex has a highly interdisciplinary ethos, so it was very easy to start collaborating closely with colleagues in life sciences, particularly with the neuroscience group. And so together with some other colleagues, we've just built up a very strong strand at Sussex where we do bio-inspired AI and robotics and computational biology. And uh, still going strong today. That's lovely. Uh, we're gonna focus on your book, Robots, What Everyone Needs to Know which looked on how we got to where we are now in robotics and offers us some insights into where we may find ourselves in the not too distant future. You seem to think we have a while to go before AI takes over. Others are less sanguine. Musk, for instance, regards AI as a possible threat to humanity, whereas I read today in the paper that Peter Blake has embraced AI in his artworks. Why are you relatively laid back on this issue, Phil? Well, a number of reasons. Um, I guess one is people should realise that there's there's always been a lot of hype and exaggeration around intelligent machines going back decades, going back at least to the 1940s, uh, probably before that even. Um, and because the, the, the media love it, they, they they love any kind of sensationalist story about you know robots taking over the world and so on. And so various people are very happy you know various hucksters and people trying to get more airtime or whatever very happy to to um feed into that but there's no evidence at all from actually within ai itself that you know we're about to be taken over by some kind of super intelligent uh you know artificial entities it's there's just no evidence there but People might think, well, there's all this chat GPT stuff recently. Isn't isn't that sort of you know super super intelligent system? Well, no, it's not. There's these generative AI systems, they're not super intelligent at all. So there's a classic confusion there between performance and competence. So mistaking performance in a narrow area or kind of small number of instances for general competence, general intelligence, so wildly extrapolating beyond what is at all reasonable. So anybody who's used ChatGPT, for instance, you can pick out some really impressive examples 
but you can also easily pick up far more examples where it's just completely off the mark and just you know spews absolute rubbish and nonsense there's clearly no understanding or knowledge going on there it's really impressive what does happen but it's not any kind of general intelligence and there's plenty of people who, who were happy to try and pretend that there was people who knew better so you know that's been happening it's also worth noting that the, the sort of problem people get really worried about, which is, uh, you know, robots taking over the world, is the autonomous robotics problem is much harder than the disembodied AI systems problem. So something like ChatGPT is just a disembodied program in the clouds that basically can take a prompt and then can produce, can generate an answer to the prompt by using this enormous uh, machine learning system that predicts what the next word should be and then just takes the, the highest probability word and creates sentences like that which is really impressive but some of those sentences are well, quite often the sentences are just complete nonsense but the, the robotics problem is much much harder because you have sensory motor coordination you have to deal with a noisy complex world in real time an awful lot of our brain, our nervous system, is to do with this kind of unconscious things. It's not to do with high-level reasoning and so on. So that's often, uh, people just think, oh, that's easy. If you've got the AI bit, that bit's easy. It's not at all. But having said all that, it's that's not to say that there aren't things we should be worried about. So there have been quite dramatic advances in AI and intelligent robotics in recent years, partly because these huge and rather nefarious corporations like Google and so on have got involved and have very, very deep pockets. So things have happened that just could not happen through, you know, government funding of research in universities. But the real problems are to do with bad human actors. It's bad use of the technology, which has always been a problem, um, you know, for millennia. Uh, so, you know, deep using deep fakes and so on. It's not the technology itself, it's the people using it and uh, you know that's i think where the real issue is and uh, i'm well i guess we'll go come on to talk about that yeah. uh, a bit later on i was surprised reading your book phil uh talking about robots how how far back they go i wonder just how many there are out there now really and can you talk a bit about about that yeah I, it's it, it is true actually it is really surprising how many there are out there uh I, I think you know it's very difficult to to come up with a uh and that very accurate number but I think a reasonable estimate is probably about 20 million robots being regularly used in, in the world at the moment. It's far more than that. It probably aren't being used that much, but probably about 20 million that are in regular use. And now of those, a big chunk are actually um, robot vacuum cleaners. There's probably something like approaching 15 million of those out there. So for instance, iRobot is the, the world leader in this sector have sold far more than 20 million today. Obviously, they're not all in use at the moment, but then there's lots of other manufacturers doing it as well. And those um, are little, you know, um, uh, autonomous robots with some kind of primitive intelligence. So there's an awful lot of them about. So they're, they're not very threatening. Um, there's maybe about three or four million uh, heavy uh, robots in heavy manufacturing. So that's the sort of you know, robot arms that are used in car manufacturing plants and things like that um but then there's other things like the, the sort of newer ways of things like warehouse robots so there's i'm not sure how many there are then there's probably i've thought at least hundred thousand maybe more where you've got these giant warehouses that 
Amazon and, and companies like that use where they've got uh, an awful lot of the manual jobs are starting to disappear in those places now where you've got robots moving stuff about all over the place in these warehouses. And then you've got maybe a million specialist service robots that we don't see much of in this country, but in other countries there's quite a few of these things appearing, like security robots. You've got medical robots. Um, you've got large-scale cleaning robots. Um, and even sort of educational home help robots in places like Japan. Telepresence robots, where instead of going to a meeting, you send a robot and you appear on a screen. Things like bomb disposal robots, quite a few robots appearing in agriculture now. And then, of course, autonomous vehicles, which are nothing less than big robots. So in all, you know, there's a lot out there. I, I, I was on holiday in Italy near Pisa, and I, I, I walked past the Pisa biorobotics department. Oh, yeah. the university there. I mean, what, what is biorobotics? Well, there's sort of two branches to it. So one is using um, robots to understand more about biology. And, and this really goes back to Grey Walter, um, you know, one of, uh, uh, very central to your, your opera. Um, he was probably the first person to do that. His, his original robots that he built, what his intention really was to try and find out more about the brain, more about how the nervous system worked by playing around with models, real embodied models. And then, you know, so other people have, have carried on that kind of work over the decades. So there's that side of it. And there's a side of it that also people call biorobotics, where um, you're taking inspiration from uh, biology in one form or another to as a, an alternative way rather than just kind of classical engineering ways of thinking about how to control robots or even to design their shapes and all the rest of it, taking direct inspiration from biology. So the other, the other part of the question was about how far robots go back, because, um, yeah, that's quite interesting, because the, the tales that we've, you know, humans spin for each other, um, going back millennia, have quite often featured human-like creatures and, and essentially machines um you know so that goes back on time and there have also been various kind of automata sort of clockwork or, or even you know pre-clockwork kind of automata of things that kind of move about uh, a bit like animals or humans usually for entertainment but then in fact the word robot itself comes from carol chapek's 1921 play r-u-r rossum's universal robots which was a, a smash hit play all over the world that's told of man-made robot slaves which were intended to do all, all the work for us but which instead rose up and overthrew humanity what year was that which may sound like a familiar plot it's the same one that was the 1920s was it that was 1921 wow. that, that plot has been used over and over again in sci-fi obviously and it is basically the thing that feeds all this kind of media hysteria people still trotting out this kind of thing so, you know, that's back from 1921. And then it was after, 19, after 1921 that people started to build things that they called robots after that. So, and again, back then they were really for entertainment. So they were advertising. So there was um, Eric the Robot, who was built in 1928 by W.H. Richards and Alan Reffel in Britain. Um, I won't go into the background why they built it, but it was a... It was like a humanoid life-size thing made out of aluminium, gleaming aluminium. It, it kind of looked like a, uh, a knight in shining, shining armour, 
and it had the letters R-U-R emblazoned on its breast, so a direct nod to Chapek and his play. And it would do things like stand up, sit down, move its head around, move its arms around, and appear to respond to voice commands and get into a conversation with people. Now, all of that bit, um, Richards never really explained how he did that, but he did admit there was no knowledge or understanding or anything. So we can only assume it was all smoke and mirrors. So either there were pre-recorded segments which were triggered somehow by a sort of a compare working with the robot, or there was an off-stage compass with a microphone and a speaker hidden in the robot. Nobody's ever quite worked out yet what happened. But it was a huge... Uh, um, hit this thing and toured the world and it was known as Eric the Robot, the man without a soul. And, you know, and the punters loved it. And then so in in America a few years later, there's a thing called Electro the Moto Man, who again was this great hulking humanoid robot built by Westinghouse, basically for advertising. So it was at the it was the star of the 1939 World Fair, this thing. This huge sort of hulking thing that would uh kind of walk and kind of do things like smoke a cigarette, count on its fingers, and again appear to uh, get into conversations. But again, it was all it had sort of gramophone records, and uh, it, it did actually have some some quite clever technology. That was the interesting thing about that. It did, which which was advertising various Westinghouse that, that um, you know technology. So, for instance, it had a sensor in its uh, in its chest which would pick up um, light, flashing light signals coming from over the other side of the room which would then uh trigger various kind of movements uh, and so on so it, had, it did you know it did actually use sensors and there was sort of kind of primitive programming going on in there so and it, it picked up various frequencies out of you know so it's good so it could respond to voice commands and so on so it was interesting from a engineering point of view and it did influence people to think about well what could you actually do with a robot that's not just a gimmick um but I, it wasn't until the 19, late 1940s that, in my opinion, things got really interesting. And that was the advent of the first autonomous robots, so, i.e. robots with self-generated behaviour. So there's no accomplice behind the scenes, no remote control, no smoke and mirrors at all. And it's often surprising to people that the first proper autonomous robots were built not in a commercial university engineering laboratory, but in the home workshop of none other than the swashbuckling British neurophysiologist, uh, neurophysiologist Gray Walter, <laughs> who wanted to use them to learn more about how the brain works. So just one of his many achievements, he was uh, the first person to build autonomous robots. And that those were very influential for the later generations. That was really the first kind of thing where people started thinking about these kind of primitively intelligent machines. Um, and, you know, it, it was also the first area of bio-robotics that we just did, discussed. And again, it, they became very, very famous. You know, there were newsreels, you know, umpteen magazine newspaper articles and so on and so on. Um, yeah, so so it's, you know, robotics has been around for a while, although in its present form didn't really get going until the sort of, you know, the, the, the engineering good enough until the 70s when the, um, you know, late 60s and 70s when the sort of manufacturing robotics really uh became big and then the that was the focus for quite a while and the AI, ai robotics was quite crude until you know the last 10 years or so when you know we've gone and, and partly from going back to some of the sort of ideas of people like gray walter 
and then now that side autonomous robotics you know powering things like autonomous vehicles and so on has become uh really big again Bill, um you've talked about robots that on the whole are doing us good what about the prospect of robots doing us harm um isaac asimov the science fiction writer came up with some rules that still seem to be taken fairly seriously could you elaborate on them and tell us if they need any sort of modification for use in the 21st century yeah so Yes, yeah, so there's still a sort of reasonable starting point to think about these things, but they were they appeared in a story called Runaround um, uh, that was published in 1942. So I'll just read them. So uh, rule one, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Rule two, a robot must obey the orders given given it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And rule three, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. So this was Asimov's three laws, but actually it's, it is quite simple to show where they're going to break down. But of course, that was probably deliberate on Asimov's part, because the fact that you can get dilemmas and conflicts um, is a, a very useful um plot device and generates jeopardy and so on so you know you get the thing where it's it's trying to obey um rule two but that's conflicting with rule one and blah blah and then you've seen that kind of thing also being used in star trek also in potentially in in, in 2001 you know and you get the same sort of b-movie sci-fi things where the conflict is so great that the head of the robot explodes you know that kind of stuff um so it kind of that the the, the the weaknesses were sort of probably deliberate on Asimov's part to do as a plot device. But I, the example I quite like to give to show how they, they fall apart, apart quite quickly is um, imagine the following scenario. So you've got uh, an autonomous taxi, and these things do exist in California, um, carrying a number of passengers, traveling along a road at the top permissible speed. So again in california you can go quite fast in some areas in these in these uh, autonomous taxis suddenly a child runs out in front of it the ai systems on board calculate that braking distance is is um, too great to avoid hitting the child if the vehicle continues straight ahead so the planning system reasons that if it swerves in one direction it will shoot into the path of an oncoming heavy goods vehicle putting everybody's lives at risk if it swerves in the other direction, it plows into a crowd of pedestrians and hits a solid wall and almost certainly is going to cause multiple deaths. So what do you do? So in that case, you, you, there's no way that those laws are going to tell you what to do because then you just immediately get a conflict. Mm -hmm. So in that case, it's really um, uh, quite a nasty thing, which I think we'll probably talk about later, where you have to have some kind of um, morals, ethics somehow built into the system. What do you do in that situation? I mean, that's an extreme situation, but there's plenty of others you can dream up uh, where, you, where you're going to get similar kind of conflicts. In your book, Phil, you, you, you cite uh, an episode in Charlie Brooker's uh, Black Mirror where an out-of-control, uh, there's an out-of-control killer robot, which I watched, and it's really scary, actually. And there's a, there's a documentary in, on Netflix and the Unseen series, which is, is it addressing the same sort of issue, really? I mean, how, how will we or should we deal with a rogue robot in the future, given that some of them are being weaponized now, clearly for military and, and security purposes? 
Yeah, and absolutely. This, this this is a this is definitely a difficult one. This is the kind of thing we definitely need to try and and, and work out now. So, I, I mean, in my view, we should try and legislate and regulate so that dangerous rogue robots cannot exist, or at least uh, if if one becomes so through some fault or whatever, it's very easy to, to turn it off. But as you're saying, the military are really interested in this area, so it could become very tricky because they would argue against you know that's not good for their deployment and so on and then what happens if they get into the hands of criminals or terrorists or whatever so i mean that's one of the reasons why there is quite a movement actually against the military using robots at all or certainly not kind of autonomous type robots so this is a worrying kind of scenario but in other um you know we should, we should think of robots as art, man-made artifacts uh so we wouldn't dream of allowing other kinds of artifacts uh including cards actually and you know even just sort of you know washing machines and things we wouldn't dream of allowing these into human society if there, there was potential dangers i mean there's really strict legislation and regulation for all those kind of things it's obviously has developed over 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 a period but you know some of the people involved with robotics some other sort of corporations involved with these sort of things you know, I have a quite a dark side. If you think about, you know, all the um, complex uh, tax avoidance schemes and things that big, big tech corporations have dreamt up over the years, and I, you know, they're different players. Whether you know they try and avoid any kind of as much regulation and legislation as they can, and they're the sort of people who are involved in some of this stuff. So it, it this is worrying, and so I don't think there has to be um you know some kind of international efforts to properly regulate this kind of stuff obviously i suppose that's kind of to some extent what Richie sunak's thing at um, bletchley park last week was about although you know i mean you know possibly i've been cynical but it, it looked to me it was more more about sort of grandstanding from sunak who's in a desperate political straits at the moment but yeah it, it, this this is one of the real um issues this one because you because the you don't have to have a super intelligent um weaponized robot before it becomes really dangerous in two weeks i'm speaking to jonathan marino who's a professor of bioethics who's written a lot about military funding of uh, neuroscience so it'd be interesting to to pick up this with him but quite a lot of big companies they almost feel like they're run by amoral robots don't they sometimes i don't know whether their i robot was really come to life not as like a humanoid thing, but just as a, a technique. Everybody in that company could die, and it would still plough on getting more profits, you know, uh, and, unless there's a very ethically-minded CEO, really. They're, they're as big a worry as any robots or AI to me, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, to me, they are the biggest worry. It's that, you know, the way that's that's all happened. <clears throat> yeah, no, I absolutely agree. That That is the worry, is the humans. You know, an invention of surveillance capitalism all that kind of thing came out of those companies um and you know i've met some of these people and yeah they don't look to me like they give a damn about ethics and morals it's you know it's money 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 can we talk briefly about the autonomous vehicle on the road is it possible to program some sort of ethical thinking into that could to, to avoid those scenarios you were talking about where it has to make a decision about killing pedestrians or, or plowing into a truck yeah i yes i mean and, and there are sort of beginnings of attempts to do that but again it's not very straightforward i mean the main approach to that kind of thing at the moment is just trying to make sure 
that these systems are and to be honest the, the, the cars are a bit different but i think that's only because the car industry is already very heavily regulated so you can't get away with bringing in some new kind of vehicle and didn't give a damn about safety or anything um so already these things are incredibly thoroughly tested and trained and all the rest of it so the moment the main focus is, is on that so it's you know that the, they will be the most tested piece of technology in the history of the world probably by the time these things become more widely uh you know available around the world but so it's trying to find the level of sensing speed of reactions the kind of forward planning and so on to be um at a level that it's far beyond what humans could do so and because it's kind of the reasoning is you're probably never going to be able to eradicate accidents uh you know these kind of with, with these vehicles there probably will be some but if the number of accidents the type of accidents are far fewer than with human drivers then people may accept them they're actually safer not foolproof but safer so that's one kind of that's a main focus but then people are also thinking about well you know in some cases uh in autonomous vehicles but maybe in other kind of robots in the future as well you are going to have to codify ethics in some way so human ethics uh human moral codes are incredibly messy because they've sort of grown organically over long periods of time and uh, the law is a very messy thing often deliberately to make things complicated so that you know lawyers can spend more time working on cases whatever so it, it's a mess so people have talked about well at least trying to look at particular kind of ethical codes like utilitarianism which is basically trying to um favoring outcomes that produce the greatest goods to the greatest number so trying to apply that for instance to the case of you know who's the car going to kill <laughs> that type of thing somehow encoding that or you've got things like the doctrine of double effects which i guess i don't know you you two may well have we know about that. come across this way back in sort of medical school days or something this idea that something can be morally good i.e like saving many many lives but it also has a morally bad side effect which they call the double effect so which might be killing a smaller number in the process but it, it can that can still be regarded as ethical as long as the bad side effects not intended and you know if it's likely it was foreseen but you save more people so there's there are sort of ethical principles which could be applied but then it's like well who's going to decide which ones to apply and how are you going to make sure they're applied properly so there's still a, a lot of complications there. and again i can only see if it gets to that level it's not quite there yet it's got to be sort of internationally agreed standards and regulations for that kind of thing but it's yeah definitely not a straightforward uh Maybe problem at all. A, a world body for robotics yeah i changed the subject slightly in your book you mentioned something called the singularity and i just wondered if you could Tell us what that is and, and a little bit about it. Yeah, so the thing, you know, it originally comes from something that um, John von Neumann, who was a great 20th century mathematician and one of the sort of computing pioneers, he came up with this idea of the technological singularity, which was his idea was that as technological advances accelerate and sort of get faster and faster, there will become a point at which the way that we as humans and our societies function will be fundamentally changed the old ways will no longer make sense 
you know, human life would be forever and fundamentally changed. So that was his idea of technological singularity. So the one that we normally refer to is often just called, and, and that, I should just point out that he called it singularity because that's basically his mathematician. That's just the mathematical term for the point at which some mathematical object is not properly defined or ceases to behave by the normal rules. So it's just a mathematical term. So the thing that is normally called the singularity is the version of that that's applied to machine intelligence. And that was, I would say, was properly first articulated by Jack Good in the 1960s. Now, Jack Good worked with Adam Turing at Bletchley Park on co-cracking, who's his kind of chief um, statistician working with him. And along with Turing and Gray Walter, he was a member of the Ratio Club, which is an important mid 20th century British scientific club that was focused around cybernetics. So I'm going to read a bit of a 1962 article by Jack that basically explains what he meant by this thing that's now called the singularity. Let an ultra intelligent machine be defined as a machine that can far surpass all the intellectual activities of any man, however clever. Since the design of machines is one of these intellectual activities, an ultra-intelligent machine could design even better machines. There would then unquestionably be an intelligence explosion, and the intelligence of man would be left far behind. Thus, the first ultra-intelligent machine is the last invention that man need ever make, provided that the machine is docile enough to tell us how to keep it under control. <laughs> so this idea that, you know, they would make intelligent, you know, just um, far surpassing. That's the thing that people then call, um, you know, the singularity. And you've had so-called futurologists, various kind of hucksters and uh, self-serving scaremongers for the past, about the past 40, 50 years have been claiming the singularity is just around the corner. And I haven't seen it. I don't know if anybody else has spotted it, but, you know, it's just complete nonsense. So, in fact, Jack Curd in 1978, uh, sorry, in, in the original paper, said that he thought it would occur around about 1978. And so in, uh, I think it's 2002, uh, a colleague Owen Holland and I, we spent a day with Jack Good interviewing him about various things. And so we asked him about these early speculations on ultra-intelligent machines and so on. And he was a bit embarrassed about this 1978 thing. And he agreed that his, his initial estimates of, of when this intelligence explosion, what they now call the singularity would occur, was just wildly inaccurate because like many AI researchers, both then and now, he just completely misjudged how difficult it was to create advanced general AI. So it's, and then still that's kind of underlying problem for an awful lot of these people. Your book, Robots, is beautifully written, Phil, and remarkably easy to read given that it's from an AI professor, to, especially. Um, and I, I wondered if you'd mind uh, reading some. It, it, the last chapter is three vignettes or short stories looking at robotics in three stages in the future. I wonder if you might read one of, of those for us, uh, set an extract from one of those. Yeah. So the scene is uh, in hundreds of years time in a school, children being taught partly by robots, partly by humans. And so afterwards, they went outside for a break. They watched the pulsing, mesmerizing colors of a swarm of robot insects heading off towards the agrizone. The tiny robots had many uses, redirecting crop pests to areas where they would do no harm, managing pollination and collecting reams of data on every aspect of crop health, as well as local environmental conditions. 
Above them, elegant robot birds with startling plumage were gliding over the fields on the lookout for larger pests, as well as directing ground-based irrigation robots to the best target areas. Some of the te teenagers nearby were chatting about the board games. The Cyborg Ath Athletics Championships were to be held at the sports complex in a few days. There, were talk, there was talk of skullduggery from one of the main teams, outlawed genetic engineering practices and banned neural implants that deadened pain. The team owner denied all allegations and challenged the authorities to test his cyborgs. They'd find only legal enhancements, he claimed. Yeah, isn't that the same guy who reckons he's going to upload his consciousness onto a compute engine next year, asked one of the crowd. Yeah, that's him. Apparently he's been saying that for the past 30 years. <laughs> I, that, that's lovely and I really like those stories I mean they're all they've got that positive spin as well we, we've got a few more minutes do you want to do that last question of yours Andy there, yeah. there's every indication that uh, AI will hit our world harder than the industrial revolution of the, the late 18th century how will society deal with an unemployed and unemployable underclass that AI may create yeah it's a tricky one um, I, I don't think the it's, I think it'd be a while before this is going to happen, but it could well happen. Certainly, already, very certain sort of low-skilled uh, jobs are under a lot of threat. So, at least one that you know, society needs to be aware of that. There needs to be look at retraining and uh, and uh, um, uh, lifelong education for people in those kind of things. Um, but in the bigger picture, if lots of skilled work went and even um, lots of the white collar work went as well. Uh, this kind of thing Elon Musk has been talking about. Then nobody would need to work. Um, I, it, I'm not sure we'd ever actually reach that because I, I'm not sure we'd have a society where where nobody wants to work. You know, humans are evolved, and we seem to need purpose. We seem to do something, uh, and and feel like we have value. So you know, I I think. Um, that that to me it doesn't sound actually particularly like a utopian society to me particularly but the, but there are kind of three broad possible directions of travel that, that are often talked about so we carry on regardless and assume like actually has happened in the earlier waves of automation that as many jobs are created as, as are destroyed a lot of people are saying with ai and that may well not be true which then means that we may, by not planning and thinking about things, go into uh, an alternative side where you get advanced automation, it increases the wealth of certain sectors of the population, the rich, the skilled and the highly educated, basically, while the rest become poor and become an underclass, as you say. I think that could happen by accident. I mean, some people would probably encourage that, they'd like that. So then there's this utopian vision that people talk about where, you know, and again, people used to talk about in Victorian times, even or in, in 1930s and other ways of, of, of uh, automation, where you grasp the opportunities, create far more leisure time, abolish scarcity, you know, um, everybody gets a, a fair share of the pie and so on. But then that's that sounds good on some levels, but it's rather complicated how you, it would be such a massive rearrangement of society. Um, how would we go about trying to do that? You could imagine all sorts of friction, all sorts of people with vested interest not wanting that. People talk about universal basic income, income whereby everybody has a, a decent uh, standard of living, uh, presumably from the state, so there isn't need to work. Uh, then exactly how is that going to be funded? The utopian vision of 
universal income and all that kind of thing sounds great but exactly how that could come about is i mean that would be such an enormous piece of socio-political engineering that that's huge change that could ever you know if that could ever happen but then if that did happen it's are, are humans actually suited to that um so we would all become like the idle rich and then in history the idle <laughs> rich also... not a good model no no not a good model at all. so in fact that that last little little um, sort of vignette short story was looking was actually looking at that issue so you know a, a possible model would be everybody works uh and is in fact is expected to work to some extent probably in a number of different part-time roles um so there's still lots of human contact in things like teaching yeah. care and things like that um and then in fact most people would probably want to have several roles um you know so you know there's 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 you do all the kind of things you do and me very similarly i think yeah, yeah. many people like us who would love to be you know would work for a few days on one thing a few days you know yeah. be a musician and whatever i think that that would be a wonderful model um but how that would ever come about especially with people like you know it, it's it's an enormous challenge uh but maybe one day so so in fact in that little vignette um you know, I set that 600 years in the future and in, in there actually talked about how it had been a great struggle to get to that that point. Yeah. And that's, you know, to me, that that's the sort of time scale, I think, for those sort of changes. Yeah, yeah. But, um, so maybe, some, you know, who knows? Thanks ever so much, Phil. No, my pleasure. Great to talk to you, Phil. Yeah, yeah. It's, been, it's been brilliant, Phil. Thanks ever so much. Thanks again to Professor Phil Hosmond for coming on the podcast and I highly recommend his very readable book Robots What Everyone Needs to Know. I'll put a, a link to it in the episode notes and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.